friends, and welcome back to the latest edition of Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. Today, we are really privileged to have Dr. Andy Bannister with us. Um, Andy, how you doing? I'm doing well, Jeff. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, now, what I know you're in Scotland right now. Tell us what part of Scotland we're, we're talking to you from. So uh, I'm coming to you uh, from Dundee, and for those who don't know Scotland that well, that's about an hour or so uh, north of uh, of Edinburgh, and up here on the beautiful east coast of uh, of Scotland. So the sunniest part of Scotland, they tell me, 220 days of uh, sunshine uh, a year. Admittedly, the temperatures are usually around freezing, but hey, what's not the like? <laughs> now, um, now I understand we have at least one of our mutual friends. We have a number of mutual friends, but one of them, uh, Jonathan Sherwin. I think you were just in Hawaii, weren't you, in Maui? I was. That's right. So yeah. So uh, so yeah. Jonathan and I and uh, a few others. We were down in uh, Hawaii for a, a mission where um, YWAM and RZM, who I asked to do some work for, had, uh, had partnered up. So it was a bit of a shock to the system because I spoke in Belfast in Ireland, uh, then it was Hawaii, and then from Hawaii it was to Inverness in the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> so um, yeah, the temperature change was slightly slightly different. Obviously, you know, in Inverness, we had the palm trees and the turtles, and uh, in Hawaii, it was rain and cold. Right. Well, you know, you're talking about the sun in, in Scotland, so I just thought I'd rub in your recent travels. Um, now, you're in Scotland. You're working with now, you, you mentioned you, used, you do a little bit of work with RZIM. I, I don't know if people know that you were in Canada. You were the director of RZIM in Canada. But now you're working somewhere. You're the director of the what is it? The Solas Center for Public Christianity. Yeah? Yes, I work for an organization called uh, called Yes. Exactly, you got it right first time. The Solas Center for Public Christianity, S O L A S. And people can find us online if they go to solas-cpc.org. And so we're we're a Scottish uh, evangelism and training uh, ministry, really just trying to talk about the gospel in the public square and uh, trying to empower Christians to do the same. So we do everything from uh, engagement in the world of politics and education, the media. We do pub evangelism. Uh, we teach and train Christians. Uh, we have a magazine uh, that you can find about through the uh, through the website. And um, we've also just uh, launched a uh, brand new um, video resource that's available online and through social media called Short Answers. And the people look us up on Facebook or those kind of places, they can find these about three and a half minute video clips tackling tough questions and you can share those with your friends, stick them on Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And we're, uh, we're excited how the first few of those have gone. We've had uh, tens of thousands of downloads on the first ones. So whether it's in the uh, whether it's in more traditional face-to-face or in print or on digital media, uh, we just love talking to people about the gospel. Well, that's great. I actually saw, I've, I've seen a number of those, and, um, and this might be a good place to start in with... Um, for someone mm. to be able to get to know you a little bit, one of them recently you did, I think, talked about your identity, and um, somewhere along that video, I think you had mentioned there was an earlier time in your life where you're even having sort of a, uh, I don't know if breakdown's the right word, but there was kind of a crisis of uh, in life for you. But just w- would you be willing to just sort of give us a background of what your faith journey's been like to kind of get us up to speed to where you? Yeah, so that was on the most recent one I think we did, which was um, Are You More Than Your Resume? Okay. And so I, taught, I hinted a little bit, a little bit of my story there. I was sort of born and, uh, and raised uh, in a Christian home, good, a uh, good Baptist family. And you know, as we all know, you don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven, but why take chances? <laughs> yeah, that's my, uh, my favorite life. And so that was all well and good. I, um, I gave my life to Christ at a youth meeting when I was sort of thirteen or fourteen. Um, but then for me, there was a bit of a sort of crisis of everything, really. It wasn't I mean, whether breakdown's the right word. It's probably too strong, but certainly a bit of a sort of life crisis. When in my mid twenties. I basically 
um, sort of got onto this sort of um, treadmill of trying to locate your identity and performance. So I was, there was a job I loved and was doing very well in, so I just worked incredibly hard and found a big part of my identity in success. Um, also, so at the same time, trying to set my own small uh, computer software company up, and 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 again, it was doing well financially, but it was taking huge amounts of of hours. I was volunteering for a, doing youth ministry, and achieving again a certain amount of identity in what I was doing and doing and doing and doing. And it turned out, basically, what I was doing was trying to sort of find my identity and self worth in what I did. Was I was burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. In fact, even pouring petroleum over the candle and saying like, <laughs> and um, I ended up with with depression. And so I went to my, 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 my GP, went to my family doctor, sort of describing how I was feeling, what I was up against. And he was a kind of wise old bird. He, he, he'd obviously seen this before because he asked me to pull out my, my diary and uh, sort of look at the stuff I was doing. And I talked about all of this. And then finally he looked at me across the consulting sort of office table and said, and this was the question he asked. He said, what are you, what are you trying to prove, son, and to, to whom? And that was an amazing question. He wasn't a Christian, as far as I know, because it basically got to the number of it. I was trying to prove something to somebody, goodness knows whom. And I remember going home thinking about this and realizing that, in one sense, although I'd signed up, you know, on the dotted line, as it were, as, as a Christian, um, the one piece I hadn't fully got my head around is, you know, Jesus, uh, is, our relationship with Christ is not just about forgiveness for our sins. It's about a whole new identity that isn't based on performance because Jesus has already demonstrated how much he loves you and what he's done for you on the cross. You can't impress him through how much you earn, how hard you work, how many prayer meetings you attend. Uh, and finding that security and identity in Christ rather than in what you do um, was, a, was, a, was a hugely important lesson, and transformative one. And one actually I think more people need to realize, like I'm, I think I, as Christians we can easily drift into the trap of performance of thinking that it's somehow about what we do for God um, that makes him like us more rather than turning it entirely on its head and saying, no, the reason we serve God is because of what he's done for us in Christ. And it's out of gratitude and thanks, not out of an attempt to sort of earn our way in. And if you get that the wrong way around, it can be uh, devastating, not just spiritually, but, but emotionally and psychologically, as I found. Yeah, I think it really has worn down a, a great number of well-intended uh, people of faith over the years. They start down the path of trying to do good things for God and uh, years later find themselves exhausted and wondering what happened. Um, well, I, you know, along the lines of, of that, um, you know, I know for me, you've, you've obviously done a lot of work in Christian apologetics. Um, and I wonder what the sort of impetus was for you to, to start down that path. I know for, for myself, uh, I had all kinds of questions that would come my way that I maybe could give some answers to, but, Really, but I would walk away from the conversation less convinced than the person I was talking to and uh, mm. ne needed to sort of chase some of those things down for myself um, and sort of examine the roots of my faith to make sure I felt confident in them. But I know for others, there's many other reasons why they why they dig into that. What was what was it in your faith journey that that invited you towards that? Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. Um, well, certainly until the mid 1990s, I hadn't really thought about apologetics or anything like that. I was in youth ministry. Um, I'd gone into full-time youth ministry by the late 1990s. And um, really, all you need to do youth ministry is a, is a Bible and a sharp stick, or probably a depending on the teenagers you're working with. And then one day, um, a guy came to our church and did a seminar on Islam. And he was one of the most engaging speakers I've ever met. He described how he was um, doing public ministry at a place in London called Speaker's Corner. And Speaker's Corner is kind of famous the world over as the kind of world center of free speech. And it's part of uh, one of our parks in London where every Sunday afternoon 
You can stand on a ladder or a soapbox and talk about anything, religion, politics, sport, you name it. And he was using this to reach Muslims. And so I got talking to him after his seminar, and he said, well, why don't you come along to Speaker's Corner and see what we do? And I thought that sounds interesting. So the weekend, I went to Speaker's Corner in London, uh, met, him at, met uh, him at the underground station, and he had two step ladders with him. And he said to me, I brought a second ladder so you can stand on the ladder and preach next to me. And I said, well, I've never preached on this before. I've never, never talked to a Muslim before. Oh, it's easy. He said, it's easy. <laughs> never has such a false statement been said, I tell you. Because I got on my ladder and the Muslims there were very practiced in taking Christians to pieces and they demolished me. <laughs> All kinds of objections to the gospel, you name it. Absolutely everything. It's like, it's like being machine gunned by arguments. I remember going home, my head spinning, thinking, well, maybe I need to become a Muslim because they seem to have all of the answers and all of the questions, and I have nothing, absolutely nothing. And I lay awake that night, tossing and turning. About three in the morning, my long-suffering wife turned to me and said, you know, why are you tossing and turning and keeping us both awake? And I told her my story, and her sage advice was, well, why don't you read a book, ideally in the morning? <laughs> so I thought, that's a good idea. So the following morning, I went along to the local Christian bookshop explained my problem and they directed me to this dusty section at the back of the shop marked apologetics which is a word i would never heard of before and I bought my first ever book on this stuff I think it was Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict and I read and I read more and more and more and more on a corner two weeks later with answers to every question they'd asked me <laughs> and they had new questions and they made me look stupid all over again but then I went back and read some more. So the next three months, I would speak to Muslims on the weekend, uh, get the stuffing knocked out of me, read in the week to answer the questions, go back. And God used that three-month process, really, to give me a love of Muslims and sharing my faith with them, a love of public evangelism, and also this seeing what the importance of apologetics and having answers that actually work. And it's interesting, your comments about your answers that you felt didn't work. You see, for me, this was a great, it was like being in a in a hothouse, really, because I had to have answers that worked. And I found out very quickly if they didn't. If I turned up a speaker's corner, tried something, and it was useless, those Muslims very helpfully pointed out it was useless. <laughs> so uh, I have Muslims to thank for a lot of this. Yeah. And since then, I mean, that put me on a path to, you know, dialoguing with people of all faiths and none. And I've had some fantastic conversations across the years with, with atheists and agnostics. I had a friend in Toronto who was a Zen Buddhist monk, and, you know, the list goes on. And, and I think when you... One of the things I think we sometimes shy away from as Christians is actually talking to people who don't share our convictions about our convictions. Because um, it can be scary, uh, but it can also help you really go, this is where I've got to think now, because this person has a good objection that I haven't thought through. I'm going to ring my bastard up and go and bug him. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I'm interested in that. Um, I've been over that speaker's corner. I, that sounds, it's completely intimidating, This the circumstances you're describing. So I I wish I had the video of, of your first times up there. Uh, <laughs> that would probably be. <laughs> that would probably be fun to watch, but um, one you kind of move past something that I think is is really interesting. I'd be, I'd love to hear more about as you you started out trying to, you said I think engaging that argument, trying to your the Christianity yeah. ideas versus Islam, um, and you and you moved on to say at some point you really developed a love for for Muslims. Yes. I wonder what that transition looked like for you. What did you? How would you talk about why that transition happened? Do you think, or what? Yeah. What kind of brought you through that? That's a great. It's another great question. I think. I think there's a number of things, Jeff. I think firstly, and and this these convictions remain with me today. I mean, twenty twenty five years on from where this all began. Um, I think. I think I love the passion. 
of, of of the Muslims I was engaging with and the many Muslims I meet I meet today. There's a, there's a passion and an energy there. The, the type of person I struggle with the most when I'm having conversations about about the gospel and about 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 things of faith is the kind of apathetic, agnostic, I'm not really interested type. You know, it's a bit like nailing fog to a wall at times. <laughs> with them but muslims there's an energy i mean they're not afraid of telling you what they think and i i love that i love that 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 openness at the same time i also love the hospitality uh, in the in in the culture um to go i've had you know really strident conversations with with muslims what to an outsider might look like a debate and then afterwards you'll get a you know a, a great big hug and you offer a cup of coffee and, it, and, it, and, I, and i like that i like that real willingness to actually debate but also you know to, to be able to build friendships that, that cross it sometimes muslims have taught me more about that than christians have actually and then also i think with muslims i find and actually the same would go for some of the cults out there the jehovah's witnesses the mormons these kind of guys they're the easiest conversation to start conversations about faith with you know if, you, if you've got an atheist buddy at work if you're listening to this it can be tough right starting a conversation with an atheist friend with a muslim jehovah's witness a mormon a simple hey what do you guys believe and you're off you know they're running with it. uh and i really enjoyed that actually um and i think it's refreshing because in the west so often now we're creating this culture where nobody talks about what they believe everyone's afraid of offending somebody anybody saying you know triggering somebody violating somebody's safe space and you know we have you know speech codes everywhere whether they're the formal ones or the informal ones we construct ourselves and, and muslims none of this stuff applies mm. so i've just found them incredibly easy people talk uh, about spiritual things with now that doesn't mean those are they're easy conversations because some of the questions are really good ones um but in terms of actually getting that conversation going it's great yeah that's and like you said some of those tough com- some of those tough questions um are actually quite helpful um for ourselves to to, mm. dig, to dig into some of the things that we've probably not spent enough time considering ourselves i think sometimes um I know, and you, you know, you have a PhD in Islamic studies. Um, I know you've written a book at one point um, about Islam or the Quran, um, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure if we we're going to go here right away or not. But um, as long as we're talking about um, conversations with with Muslims and issues of Islam, um, just recently here uh, in the states, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, where my daughter attends uh, university, they had a bit of a uh, I don't know if they're calling it a terrorist situation or something, but it's, I'm not, I don't wouldn't mean to argue the details of it, but there's this issue of like um, immigrants and issues of Islam and anger at the West for, you know, oppressing Muslims around the rest of the world. And, um, and so this, however people look at these situations, it's starting to hit much closer to home than maybe it has for many in the States before. And I wonder if someone yourself who's clearly spent a lot of time um, not only studying but engaging Muslims in, in, uh, in conversation, what are the types of things that you would say to maybe Americans who are just now you know, um, engaging this conversation? What are, the, what are the types of things you think they should be asking, that they should be kind of keeping in mind just as they start into this? Yeah, that's a great. That's another great question. You're 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 uh, you're you're bowling them out nicely this afternoon. Um, <laughs> I think I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, I think to realise that to to get our heads around understanding Islam is going to take more than a soundbite. You know, we live in a very soundbite orientated culture um, where people are not always willing to do the deep thinking. And so, for example, in Islam, we've often reduced the conversation around Islam to things like is Islam peaceful or Islam violent. And the problem is that's a very simplistically framed question. Um, you know, the answer is that it's both end, um, depending on where you look and who's doing the looking. So I think one of the things I'd encourage 
you know Americans to do is is dig deeply into into trying to understand Islam partly in the words of Muslims themselves. I think one of the mistakes we've made in Europe. I'm very conscious, you know, not to come across as arrogant, saying, well, let me tell Americans what to do. What I can say is, based as a European and having lived six years in Canada, what were the mistakes we made there as cultures, as Canadians and Europeans that you guys can avoid making? And one of them will be take the time to actually study what Islam is and recognize it's diverse. That's not means that it's going to be some tough thinking, but that can be done. And there's been some journalists who are beginning to do that. And then I think for Christians, I think one of the, one, I think one of the issues that, that Islam and migration and the refugee situation raises is we've got to do some tough thinking as as Christians around what the gospel is and it's very easy to collapse the gospel to politics and that things get very dangerous there um, you know as a Christian if my primary the primary thing I'm arguing is you know uh, you know make America great again I have to think carefully for a moment because that might not necessarily coincide with God's will you know God's primary plan is not for one particular nation to be top dog and that can be tough for those of us who love our country, who love our pol- who love politics. I love my country. I love politics, but I also have to hold on to those things lightly, because it could potentially be God's plan that the West collapses and ashes, like every other civilization. And if it does, I'll be very upset. I love the West, but it will not mean the kingdom of God has failed. Mm. And that's the mistake we make. We start equating the West or America with the kingdom of God, and then we get threatened because we perceive something that's going on in Islam is threatening that. You know, let's be wiser citizens, let's love our country, let's be good neighbours, but let's also hold those things lightly. And also remember, even with the extremist end of Islam, to go, even those Muslims who are our enemy, and we do need to be conscious of, of that, you know, the gospel addresses that question, because Jesus told us how to relate to our enemies, and we're told to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. And we just need to hold on, be, be conscious of this. I mean, for many of us, we've never had to think through what it means to have enemies. Maybe we now have to think that through. Mm-hmm. And of course, I also want to encourage people, again, you know, for the Christians listening to this, it's interesting in terms of how you relate to extremists. Remember, there are two terrorists recorded in the, in the New Testament who come to faith in Christ. There's the Apostle Paul, who was a terrorist. He was a radical. He was killing Christians. He was a violent, militaristic, uh, religious type. And look what, look what the plans of the Lord had for him. And then, of course, Simon the Zealot. Uh, we often miss this one, but the zealots were uh, were killers. They believed that the way to deal with um, with the, with uh, with Jews who were collaborating with the Roman occupiers was you kill them. So they were radical terrorists. And here's one right in the middle of Jesus's twelve disciples. So I think that's fascinating as we think through what our response to some of these things should be. And um, yeah, it's not it's not easy. We live in complicated times, but we therefore need more than just simplistic soundbite answers. Mm. Would, what would you say the first step? I know that you're talking about it's not it's not simple, um, and you know my hope is these types of conversations can actually be a space where people can start to engage those questions. But um, is it fair to say a conversation might be the a best first step? I mean, for you it was on mm-hmm. a ladder in you know speaker's corner, but um, even locally finding somebody from another um, faith background. I think just- so. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting that. Um I remember when I sort of first came across this, when my wife was at theological college, she studied Bible college in France. I remember her telling me the story when we were dating that um, that one of the exercises the college had done was send all the students out to find somebody of a different faith and interview them. And so in her case, she ended up uh, meeting some lovely Jehovah's Witness lady who lived locally and, and having you know getting to know her. And so it was fascinating because you suddenly, it makes you think through your own faith in more detail. And I think the best way to think through your Christian faith is to talk to someone of another faith. Mm. I mean, I would say to anyone who's nervous about talking to people from other faiths, look, 
20 years of dialogue with Muslims has made my Christian faith stronger, uh, much stronger than it would have been otherwise through talking to others. So yeah, I'd say look for Muslims or people of other faiths um, in your community. If you're a university student, look around the cafeteria at lunchtime. Don't just sit with your Christian friends. Can you sit with somebody else? Or can you go to the Muslim group on campus as well as the Christian group? Sit at the back and trust me, they'll come and talk to you. Um, you know, if you're at work and you have colleagues who hold views different to your own, how do you spend time with them? Not just so you can bash them over the head, but so you can start with question asking. Why do they believe what they believe? What do they believe? And, uh, you know, all manner of um, all manner of things can happen. But conversations is the way to begin. And I think across the board, actually, I mean, it's interesting to connecting this to the previous point on extremism. You know, I've got a friend of mine who pastors um, the only Anglican church in, in Baghdad, in Iraq. His name is Andrew White. And in fact, people who want to find his story, if you Google Andrew White, vicar of Baghdad, uh, you'll find that the, uh, the BBC here in the UK did a documentary on him few years ago and I, love, I mean basically he's built a whole ministry around sitting down and talking with people right across the board I mean even the very extreme types I mean he's even had he's, he's even you know had opportunities to, to talk with and share Christ with al-Qaeda leaders my favorite story that on one occasion Andrew said the only group I haven't been able to sit down with is ISIS he said I did actually reach out through my back channels to some of their leaders and invited them to dinner and the message came back if we come to dinner we will kill you and he just, Andrew said, I decided maybe that wasn't prudent. Um, <laughs> I think I heard but, that story. You know, many, of us, yeah. many of us would look at the people he's talked with and think, are you insane? And, but he's seen God work in incredible ways. Scary. I mean, he's had some very scary experiences, but God has come through time and time again. Um, most of us, most people listening to this, the Lord is not going to call you to Baghdad to go and share Christ with Al-Qaeda leaders. He might be calling you to sit down with that person from accounts who looks a bit Muslim and uh, and perhaps step out of your comfort zone and talk with them. And hey, that can be a little bit scary, but who knows how the Lord might use that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, for people who who heard him talk about Andrew White, that I really do encourage you to follow up and, and read about him. It's just, he's just got an incredible story. Um, you know, you touched on the way that we sometimes integrate, we make the mistake of dealing with um, religion and faith too closely with politics. Mm -hmm. um, and not that we can't, not that they can't be talked about together, but that when we, when we talk about them interchangeably as if it's the same thing, um, we can get into a little bit of an issue. Right now you're at the, at the Solas Center for Public Christianity. Yes. One of the things you do, I think, is engaging Christianity in the public sphere What's been the reception like when you're trying to engage in the world of politics? Because that's also a big thing going on in the states right now, um, which is it's been hard, but at the same time, it's been it's engaging people into the conversation in a new way. What's been your experience of trying to engage politics in the public sphere? Um, you know, has there been pushback a lot? Has it been a difficult thing, or is it actually mm. easier than you thought it might? I'd say all of those things, actually. I mean, here at Solas, there are there are two of us on the speaking team. There's myself and then David Robertson, who set uh, Solas up about, about six years ago. And, I mean, David is an incredible voice in the public square. I encourage people to go to, go to the Solas kind of website and find out more about David's side of things. I mean, he does more of the politics than I do. But I think he would say a couple of things. I mean, I think, firstly, I think politics is an incredible opportunity to, to engage in evangelism that we, don't, we sometimes miss because you can preach the gospel through the issues. And I guess that's what we'd say we try and do here at Solas is not to do politics for politics sake, but for, are there ways that we can use discussions that are going on in the public square as bridges to the gospel? Um, so to give you one you know, example, you look at the amount of uh, airspace and ink in the media right now that's being ex ex um, expended on the transgender 
issue. You know, it wasn't that long ago. It was the gay marriage issue. Now it's the transgender issue. Okay, we there are a number of things we can talk about there. But one thing that question raises is the whole question of identity. You know, who are you? Are you just your gender? Are you just who you say you are? Or is there a real substance to your identity? Think of that conversation you and I had at the start, actually, about when I discovered that I was more than my work and my output. I think the transgender discussion is an incredible opportunity to talk about what it means to be human and how do you find an identity that stands on something secure, not just the latest fashion. Mm. And um, when you do that, I find actually it does a number of things. It surprises people because people expect Christians to come out and go, oh, yeah, transgender, I'm against that. That's what they'd expect. And while there's a place for a, perhaps a more nuanced sophisticated version of what i just did there at the same time what they're not used to do they're not they're not expecting as christians to come out and go hey isn't that really interesting that raises a number of questions and then to you know lead it into a discussion that's not combative but that actually leads people to the, to the cross um so i think a lot depends on how you do politics the mistake we sometimes make is we go out doing politics as if, as if the, our goal is to change the culture so it looks more christian i think put my neck on the block i think that is sometimes a mistake because the gospel doesn't isn't the message of the gospel is not behave a certain way and Jesus will like you. In other words, if you look, you know, middle class and heterosexual and right voting, Jesus goes, fantastic, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Rather, the message of the gospel is we're all messed up, broken sinners. We all need Christ. And once we get, if we give our lives to Christ and surrender to His lordship, the process of transformation begins, and we then start looking more Christian in the way that we live but because of the outworking of the inner transformation. But I think it can be a mistake to be perceived as saying to our non-Christian friends, hey, you guys need to behave more Christianly. Or why should they? They don't know Jesus. They haven't been transformed by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Why would we expect them to morally behave like Christians should be? Not saying Christians always do. <laughs> no, they certainly, they certainly don't, myself included. Um, exactly. Um, you know, along this lines... Um, I, just to tra maybe even transition just a bit because as you talk mm -hmm. about engaging people, um, your most recent book that you wrote, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or The Dreadful Consequences of Bad Arguments, um, is a really refreshing – I thought it was a very refreshing book in that and, – and this is why I transitioned because it made sense to me – is that what I was struck by is that your conversational approach – and lighthearted approach too is that it's it's not a scary conversation. We can actually have just genuine, lighthearted, friendly conversations with people about ideas, um, and not have to be defensive about it to actually be able to engage the the viewpoint of the other person and and not be afraid that they're gonna you know somehow um, undermine our faith by because we didn't protect ourselves enough from another idea. Um, maybe if would you. Just, if you wouldn't mind just taking a second talking about the book and um, you know, I know there was different, there's all kinds of stories in there, but along the lines, I think I remember a, a anecdote about maybe a rabbit and uh, <laughs> you're at a neighbor's place where he was, uh, something was taking up his garden. Yeah. So let's, let's back up a little bit. So okay. I'm just going to set, set the scene, Jeff. I mean, yeah. So the atheist, the atheist who didn't exist. And if, if listeners want to find out more, they can go to the atheist who didn't exist.com and you can download the first chapter for free or it's on amazon all those kind of places basically my concern was there was the um was two things that you had the, we had the, the growing influence of the so-called new atheists people like richard dawkins or sam harris on your side of the atlantic whose arguments against religion were getting huge traction i mean those guys have sold millions of books and being quoted all over the media and so forth but i was concerned a lot of their arguments are actually awful arguments they're just they're not just wrong they're, they're laughably wrong 
but they seem to be getting huge traction. And then Christians who were writing books responding to them, those books were not really being read. I I sort of dug into why, and I came to the conclusion that often it's because they're boring. (laughs) It's not very bad saying that, but again, there's a lot of Christian literature at times you go, oh, really? Could this not be at least a little bit more exciting? And so I found myself thinking, how could we? How could I write something that would actually be read, ideally read by non-Christians? And so I landed on the idea of using humour as a way of doing that. And um, because humour is this great leveller, humour breaks the ice, it opens doors. And so the book is really an attempt to blend apologetics, although we don't use the word apologetics because non-Christians don't know what it means, um, <laughs> with with humour. And the result actually has been incredible. I mean, it's really amazing how God's used it because it's finding its way to non-Christian hands which many apologetics books don't. So, I mean, literally just this morning, I had an email from somebody. I did a, a pub evangelism event last week. So just down the road from where I am is a, is a city uh, called Stirling. And one of, our, one of my friends there, he and his church had rented um, the top floor of a pub run by Australians. And being in Scotland, they, 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 they blended the two cultures and they called it the kilted kangaroo. <laughs> um, the top floor we rented, we had about 50 people in there, almost half and half Christian, non-Christian. And it was uh, they asked me to speak on where is God in Aleppo. Hmm. Um, so we did that, answered Q and A, and during the Q and A, there was a young woman there who was either an atheist or agnostic or something. We went to and fro for about ten minutes on one issue. But it was a, it was a very polite conversation, but it was it was quite sparky. And at the end, <laughs> I gave my book. Um, I got an email today from my friend. So this is less exactly one week ago. Just say and telling me I thought you'd like to know. She read the whole thing from cover to cover within 24 hours, and is now meeting regularly with one of the pastors in one of the churches to to, to ask further questions. Um, but I was like, praise the Lord, because that's what the book was designed to do. It was designed to be read by non Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way we do that is uh, I take in the book 11 common arguments that have been popularized by the new atheists and then show how if you put them into a different situation um you can often show how foolish they are so the 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 rabbit uh (laughs) analogy that you talked about that's the um, richard dawkins popularized the uh this this argument it goes like this um christians are atheists with regard to you know zeus and apollo and allah and you know hundreds of different gods uh, the only God we Christians believe in is, is, is Yahweh, and we're being inconsistent because atheists basically go one God further and reject Yahweh as well. And so Christians are inconsistent atheists. Now, I remember first reading that argument and going, what? And then you think, <laughs> is this actually quite slippery? Because how do you respond to it? Yeah. And it occurred to me, and this is the story I tell in the book, and hopefully it's slightly funnier form than the summary version. <laughs> you know, Dawkins' argument is rather like, you know, I'm, I imagine the story, I'm walking down the road, and I, and I hear sobs coming from across the road. I walk across the road, and there's a man curled up on, the, on, on his front garden in tears, and I ask him what's going on, and all of his prize uh, carrots have been dug up and eaten by some critter in the night. And he says, I can't understand what did it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've, you know, it clearly I've eliminated, I've been thinking about it all day, I've eliminated elephants and I've eliminated, you know, pandas and koala bears and all kinds of, of things. And I say, well, what about, a, what about a rabbit? Maybe it was a rabbit. And he goes, no, 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 if I've eliminated every other ra- animal, I have to eliminate rabbits as well, otherwise I'd be inconsistent. <laughs> yeah. um, and basically the point I make in the chapter is that Dawkins' fallacy is assuming that just because there are multiple candidates for something that that, that was just responsible and we only have to choose one doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that and mm. um, doesn't mean we should say the answer is not nobody i mean think of criminal law for example that the, the role of the police is to eliminate every suspect except one 
and then put that man on charge. But if that man, if that criminal, you know, stood before the judge and went, Your Honour, the police have, you know, let go every other suspect apart from me. Your Honour, I just encourage you to go one suspect further and let me go. <laughs> the judge would patiently explain, well, no, it's about evidence. And this is why you're on trial. Mm. And I then go on to say, what we need to do is talk about the evidence for the Christian faith versus the evidence for Thor or, uh, you know, Zeus or Allah. And I think the evidence for the Christian faith stands head and shoulders above these competing claims. Um, and so the book is an attempt to, to use that kind of funny approach to get people thinking and get even my, I mean, my non-Christian friends to go, hang on a minute, there's something wrong with that argument. And the whole the whole call of the book at the end, I don't end the book by inviting people to give their lives to Christ. There are other books that do that. This book is really to start the conversation and to say to my non-Christian friends, look, let's sit down around the table and have a sensible discussion about the big questions. Let's you know stop throwing bad arguments around and cheap sound bites and lazy point scoring. The God question is far too important to mess around with. Um, let's have a sensible conversation where we don't insult one another, but we take we take the conversation seriously. Hmm. You know, to that to that end, um, there are obviously people uh, where they have deep questions and that they're searching for answers, and then there also seems to be a large part of the population that they have these knowing you know, uh, wonderings in their spirit, but that they don't, yes. they don't verbalize. And, and I think they wonder sometimes if they really even want to start the conversation because they're afraid where it's going to take them, um, what it's going to undermine and that they have stable in their life right now. You know, what would you say to somebody like that? Mm. Well, firstly, I'd say a couple of things. The first thing I'd say to that kind of person, and you're right, I think there's a lot of people. First thing I'd say is, you know, you're not alone. I mean, it's interesting for all the noise that is sometimes made, the number of uh, people who subscribe to that sort of hard, rigid form of atheism is only 2.5% of the world's population. 97.5% of the world's population are either religious or, or use it, prefer the term spiritual. So I always want to say to people, you're not alone, is the first thing. Mm. Secondly, I think I'd say to that person, you know, given the fact that so many people have that kind of draw to something bigger than themselves, I think asking if it's true is really important. Because we're now not talking about some, you know, useless piece of information such as, you know, did Isaac Newton invent the cat flap, which is an interesting question, but it doesn't really change my life one way or the other. If there is a God, and especially if it's the kind of God who has revealed himself in Jesus with all that entails, um, a lot stands or falls on that. So it's an important question to think about. So I'd encourage that person to go, look, don't jump in foolishly. No one's inviting you to take a leap in the dark. But at the same time, it'd be crazy not to start the search, right? Um, and there are lots of ways to do, do that. There are, there are books folks can do. If people are more sort of relationally based, there's things like alpha courses. A lot of churches now run courses like that. You, you know, I'd say to somebody, go along. You don't have to commit to anything. Just go and do a 10-week course and have some pastor and ask you questions. Find a Christian friend and bug them. I would say to Christians, talk to non-Christian friends. But to non-Christians, I would say, find a Christian friend and bug them. Ask them lots of annoyingly difficult questions, like the Muslims asked me. <laughs> I always like to tease them. I always like. I love doing this to mixed audiences. I always say to any atheist present, Christians love being asked difficult questions. <laughs> Inconvenient times. Because um, I want to get the conversation going. But yeah, I, what I want to do is encourage people, don't feel stupid for thinking that. You're not alone. I think the very fact you're asking that question points somewhere. Now what are you going to do about it? And, of course, behind all of that lies the Jesus who said, those who seek will find. And uh, I also want to sort of point people to the direction of Christ, because I think sometimes it's assumed that there's no room for questions with Jesus and with Christian faith. Unfortunately, Christians are sometimes given that impression, whereas I think Jesus loves questions and loves the honest seeker. 
And I think we need to talk about that more in the church. Mm. You know, bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your objections. Um, I think, you know, we want, we want to encourage them. I'd rather have somebody with questions than somebody who's sitting there going, nah, not really interested. Yeah. Well, that that probably brings us towards the, towards the end of the time here because uh, one of the things that we – I always ask people at the end of an interview is, um, you know, with fearless questions is like, what are the questions that you wish people were asking more? You know, you, we're talking about inviting people towards conversations. Um, you know, if you were going to tell some people, lean into these questions here, like what would you, what would those be for yeah. you? I think I'd say a couple of things. I think for, for Christians, firstly, I'd say um, three, uh, two really good questions to have on you at all times are, why do you think that and what's your evidence for that? Because that actually gets you out of a lot of a lot of apologetic issues. If somebody comes to you with an objection or a question, just helping them think through well, why why do you think what you think, and what's your evidence for that? So if someone says to you, you know, the Bible's unreliable, it's not trustworthy, rather than get all defensive, start with that's a really interesting perspective. Why do you think that? And that'll do one of two things: it will either reveal they don't know what they're talking about, uh, which is quite embarrassing for them and good for you, or it will reveal they have a specific issue in mind and you address that. But then more generally for non-Christians and, and people thinking around this stuff, I think the questions I always like to encourage people to think about are are the kind of are the really the big order questions about what gives everything together. Because I say, look, you know, at the end of the day, I don't believe there's any knockdown arguments for God. I think if there were knockdown arguments for or against God, philosophers would have found them. In fact, we're still talking about this stuff, you know, thousands of years after Greek, the Greeks got philosophy going. It tells me human beings will always be talking about these big questions. But, but here's the thing. I do like to say to my skeptical friends, where, when you weigh everything together, the, you know, the fact that we live in a, in a universe with design and order, especially mathematical beauty behind it, when we find ourselves so concerned as human beings, not about things like where do we get the next meal from, but about things like justice and truth and right and wrong. I mean, you know, that's the most humans spend most of their time talking about those things. Um, why are why as why as creatures do we are we so concerned about things like love and beauty and meaning and significance? Now I ask my friends the question: Think about which worldview best encompasses all of that. Because my atheistic friends, okay, you know, they, for all the noise that's made about science, you can't live by science alone. Science is not unimportant, but it's not the only thing. And I think the more you push into that question the more you begin to realize that I think Christianity offers the best explanation for this whole package of things, everything from science to beauty to truth to meaning to significance to suffering, the list goes on. And so sometimes if people ask me why I'm a Christian, I can say, look, I can give you, I, I really can't give you one reason. I need to give you sort of, you know, three dozen reasons because I think Christianity explains all of these things far better together um, than its competing worldviews. So I think it's worth a serious look. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so appreciate that uh, response because um you know that's a core conviction of my own that you know that engaging these questions actually takes us towards freedom. Like if if what we say we believe is true, then we shouldn't be afraid of of engaging these other thoughts. And in fact, because if it didn't stand up, I wouldn't want to be you know lining my life with that anyway. So um, I do think there's freedom on the other side of this. Um, yeah, and you, so much good stuff here. Um, and I wish we could just keep going because I think that the listeners would just, <laughs> they would love to just hear you talk all day. Um, but they the can't. No. I'm well aware of that. <laughs> well, uh, that be as it may. Um, for people that still want to follow up, we've mentioned a few things. You've got your most recent book, The Atheist, the Atheist Who Didn't Exist. You can get it on Amazon. Um, but what what would be, you talked about videos. I know the Solas yeah, has so a podcast, the, you know. 
The best place to find us, Jeff, uh, and to find me, if uh, on the web, people go to solas-cpc.org. That's that's the Solas Center for Public Christianity, and you can also find that on Facebook. So if you go to if you're on Facebook, which many listeners probably are, type Solas and then CPC into uh, Facebook. You'll probably find us. Um, if they get desperate, they can search for me, Andy Bannister, and all my kind of profiles are interlinked. Okay. And what they'll do, they'll find information on the book, they'll find information on Solas, uh, the magazine that Solas put out, they'll find our podcasts, our videos, all of that stuff, and uh, loads of stuff there. Um, and what I'd really do is encourage, you know, encourage particularly Christian listeners to uh, take a look at those short answers videos and share them with friends, with colleagues, family members who are not Christians. And of course, there's people listening to this who are not called themselves followers of Christ. Again, I'd say the same thing. Take a look at some of those resources and hopefully they'll make you think. And there may be stuff you agree with, stuff you want to argue with a Christian about. Well, they can contact you, Jeff, and do that. <laughs> Thanks. And Thanks. Jeff's cell phone number and private addresses. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, no, really, thank you so much for your time today. It's, uh, it's uh, it, Like I said, it's an honor for us to get a chance to talk with you. And, um, Thanks, for, uh, Thanks for making it possible. Yep. All right, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. God bless. All right.